Turn with me uh, to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, just uh, take one of those blue ones out that you had a while ago, and you can use it. And uh, our, our passage this morning should be on page 1 uh, of that Bible. We are at the beginning uh, of the book of, of the Bible, uh, beginning of the Bible. We are in the book of Genesis. And our passage this morning we have, that we have come to, uh, in our verse-by-verse study of this chapter is verses 26 and 27. And so once you arrive at Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27, I would ask you to stand with me and uh, allow me to read these for us. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. And here is what we read. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You may be seated. Thank you. I would ask you to imagine for a moment an ironsmith working with metal over the coals of a fire. He uses his tongs, his cutting tool, his hammer to fashion the metal into the desired shape. Once he is satisfied with his work, he removes it from the coals, he douses it with water and waits for it to cool. And then the ironsmith looks at his finished product. It is a figure of a sitting ram with its two horns protruding from its head and curling to the side of its face. It is about a foot high and two feet in length. Now, imagine a pagan priest with the ironsmith and the priest takes the figure from the ironsmith and begins to recite an incantation over the figure. This incantation calls upon the God that this ram is meant to represent to pour its spirit, a portion of its divine spirit, into the idol. And once the incantation is finished, the priest and the ironsmith bow before the ram. The ram is then sold to a family. And the family sets the idol in a prominent place in their home. It is added among other idols representing other gods that this family is trusting in for protection and blessing. When it's time for them to pray to their gods, they pray via these idols. The ram's presence in their home means that the God it signifies is also present in their home. They perform various rituals and sacred acts before the idol in order to persuade the God it represents to give them what they need, be it rain for a good harvest or protection from a plague. Eventually, the ram will be broken, destroyed, lost, stolen and need to be replaced. In the ancient world, many men made their living off of creating and selling these images. Entire cities flourished 
because of the production and trade of idols. Now, in this kind of a world, imagine you are an ancient Israelite. You are surrounded by pagan nations for whom idolatry is a way of life. What about your God? What about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Are there images that represent this God? Are there images that signify His presence and His rule in a home, a community, or in a nation? The second commandment clearly says that our God will not have idols made in His likeness, doesn't it? The practice of idolatry will have no role in the worship of the true God. When His people pray to Him, they are not to approach Him through some image of wood or iron, but simply by calling upon His name. There is no man-made image that can do justice to the true God. On one occasion, when His people made a golden calf, in His image, and began to pray to that calf in His name, God showed His displeasure by instructing the Levites to kill over 3,000 Israelite men. Idolatry has no place in the worship of God. And yet, the Bible does teach that our God has images that represent Him on this earth that signify His presence and His rule. But these images were not created by an ironsmith. These images were not created by a carpenter. They were created by the very hand of God. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him, male and female. He created them. The main point of these two verses is that we bear the image of God. Now let's remember where we are. We're in the sixth day of the six days of creation. We are at the place where the animals have already been made. And now we come to the creation of man. But this act of creating man is different from the other acts of creation. And we see that immediately because the pattern that we have seen up to this point is suddenly broken. Thus far we have been hearing God say, Let there be, as in let there be light or let there be an expanse. But suddenly the let there be language is gone and we have God saying, Let us make. Now this change in language tells us that something unique, something special is about to happen. But what are we to make of this word us? Who is God talking to when He says, let us make? Well, when we look at this verse through New Testament lenses, we see that He is referring to Himself, the plurality of the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. This word emphasizes that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all participants in the creation of man. There are some who suggest that when God uses the word us, He's speaking to angels, as if angels had some role in our creation. But this makes no sense, because God says, let us make man in our image. 
And angels cannot be included in that hour because nowhere are we told that angels bear the image of God. When God says, let us create man in our image, He can only be speaking to Himself. So why did He say this? Why does God say, let us make man? Well, what God is doing here is signaling the solemnity of this occasion. Human beings were the crown of God's creative work. And the change in language here informs us that God was well aware of the significance of what He was about to do. He had been working up to this. He would delight in all His creation, but He would particularly delight in this creation, man. In fact, in Proverbs 8, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of being with His Father at creation. And in Proverbs 8.31, He tells us that He was rejoicing in His inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Human beings in particular bring joy to God's heart. The creation of man was a happy occasion, an important occasion. And the change of language here reveals that to us. As we've said, man was the last creature God made. Every other act of creation was finished before man was made. Matthew Henry suggests that God created everything else first so that man couldn't try and take credit for it. Yet this is also an expression of God's care. As He ensured that all was prepared and ready for man. Everything that the human race would need to survive was made ready for them before they were created. God would not have His special creation lack anything. He would provide for His own. In fact, once He created Adam and Eve, He told them, verse 29, Behold, look, look Adam, look Eve, look around you. I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. God was the benefactor who provided for Adam and Eve all they needed to survive. And this has implications for us. Because over and over again in Scripture, God calls us as His people to practice hospitality towards others and towards one another. And that command for us to be hospitable is rooted all the way back here in Genesis 1 and in the very nature of God Himself. God was the first being to ever practice hospitality. Creating a world which was ready to welcome human beings. As Christians, we know that our God remains a hospitable God because we have found rest in His open, loving arms. And we look forward to the day when He will show His hospitality again by throwing open the doors to a new heavens and a new earth to welcome us where all that we ever need will be provided for us. And we will live on the goodness of God forever. Every need we ever have will be met by His own generosity. Our God is a hospitable God. We are to imitate Him and express that by being a hospitable people ourselves. What was original man like? 
Was there any difference between Adam and Eve in these early days before the fall than man as we know him today? Martin Luther taught that sin has had such a devastating effect on the human body that our abilities today are nothing compared to what they were before the fall. Here's what Luther says. You see what you think about this. Luther said, I am fully convinced that before Adam's sin, his eyes were so sharp and clear that they surpassed those of the lynx and eagle. He was stronger than the lions and the bears whose strength is very great and he handled them the way we handle puppies. Whether Luther is right about that or not, I do not know. But one thing we can say for sure about what was different between Adam's body and Eve's body before the fall and ours today is that their bodies knew nothing of aging or decay. Their bodies knew nothing of deterioration. Had the fall not occurred, we can surmise that Adam and Eve's bodies would have lasted forever to this very day and far beyond. And that their children and children's children and children's 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 and so forth would have grown to an ideal state of adulthood and remained there in perfect health and happiness for all eternity. In these first days of history, Adam and Eve's bodies knew nothing of pain, just as their souls knew nothing of sorrow. It was paradise. It was the first heaven. Well, what does it mean when it says that man was created in the image and likeness of God? And as I've already tried to explain through my little story about the ram, images were everywhere in the ancient world. Practically every household of the ancient Near East owned images of some kind. These images were used to express the character of the gods they represented. Now, note, these images were not intended to depict the gods they represented, only to express them. So, for example, if there's an idol in the form of a ram, that does not mean that the God it represents looks like a ram. No, gods are, in the ancient world, they understood their gods to be spirits, just as we know the true God is a spirit. And so, if the form of a ram was used, it was because that was chosen as a suitable way to express the character of the God it represented. Images were intended to express the characters of the gods, not to depict what they looked like. Therefore, those who suggest that man being made in the image of God means that we look like God misunderstand these verses. God is a spirit, and Jesus was as well before he took on our humanity. God does not have a physical mouth with lips and a tongue, nor does he have a physical arm with muscles and tissue. The human body is meant to express important things about our God, but we do not depict what our God looks like. Our physical ears are not meant to teach that our God has physical ears. Rather, they are to express the truth that our God is a hearing God. He hears the cries of the afflicted. He hears the prayers of His people. 
Our hearing is limited. God's hearing is unlimited. He hears all things. Our ears are a finite reflection of that truth. We bear His likeness in that regard. Our eyes point to the truth that God sees. Right? He sees all. Nothing is hidden from Him. Our minds are a pointer to the truth that God has knowledge, infinite knowledge. Our emotions point to the fact that our God is an emotional God who grieves over sin and rejoices over righteousness. Expressing the character of God is a large part of what it means to bear His image. And in the garden, before the fall, this was done perfectly. As Adam and Eve lived together in peace, they expressed the peace between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. As they loved each other and cared for one another, they expressed God's own love and God's own care for them. Adam and Eve were characterized by the moral qualities that characterize God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. Adam's leadership of his wife coming along, I'm, I'm sorry, providing for her by working in the garden was a picture of God's leadership and provision for Adam and Eve. Eve's role as a helper to Adam, coming alongside of him and providing him companionship, this too was an expression of the character of God. In other words, church, just by living with the bodies and the abilities God had given them, Adam and Eve expressed the character of God. They bore His image on the earth. Many years ago, I entered the home of a man and watched as he kneeled on the floor and prayed to an idol made by human hands. This idol was sitting motionless above his television. The idol could not talk. It could not move. It could not do anything. It was simply an object. And this man bowed to it. Well, folks, our God has ordained it to be so that His images expressing His character are not motionless objects that sit above televisions, but are human beings with thoughts and emotions and behavior and life. And in this way, we represent our God. We are a finite picture of the infinite. And in the beginning, Adam and Eve lived their lives of holiness. And as they did so, they bore God's image perfectly. There was nothing about Adam and Eve that did not reflect some glorious truth about their Creator. God made them. He placed them on the earth as the apex of His creation. He gave them stewardship of the earth, and it was very good. Now there's more that makes us unique. Remember in our story about the ram, how the pagan priest spoke the incantation over the ram so that the spirit of the God would come into the idol? Well, that is a pagan perversion of something that God did in reality. God did not make us divine, but He did breathe life into us, didn't He? Genesis 2, God breathing into Adam. And what's more, God has given us something that no other creatures have, a soul capable of genuine fellowship with Him. We are able as, as human beings to fellowship with God in a way that no animal can. Adam and Eve could be visited by God in the cool of the day and have conversations with Him and enjoy His company. The first poem in the Bible, verse 27, 
The first poem in the Bible is meant to celebrate and emphasize the importance of man's creation. This verse reminds us that our special place in creation was a gift from God and that it applies to everybody, all men, both male and female. And it is just one more way among many that man is highlighted as the apex of God's creation. Now, wait a minute, Justin. Isn't that arrogant? Is it not boastful for us to say that we are the highest of God's creatures? Well, friends, it is the clear teaching of the Word of God. We can't be boastful about it. We didn't make ourselves the highest of God's creatures, but it is unmistakable. Man is the final creature created by God. Everything else builds up to Him. More verses are given to talking about man's creation than any other creature. The word create, used only once in verse 1, once in verse 21, suddenly shows up three times in speaking about the creation of man. The pattern changes from let there be to let us make. Before man, creation is called good, but after man, creation is called what? Very good, right? Man is the only creature created in God's image. Man is the creature given dominion over all the earth. And of course we know that when Jesus came to earth, He did not come as a chimpanzee, did He? He came as a man. He did not come as an animal, but took human flesh upon Himself. And not just for 33 years, but for eternity. It was for man that Christ died. Certainly His death has implications for the rest of creation, but it was ultimately for us that He came. And all this and more point to the preeminence of man in God's creation. Listen to how Arkent Hughes helps us to grasp this truth. Listen to what he says. Though you could travel a hundred times the speed of light, past the countless yellow-orange stars, to the edge of the galaxy and swoop down to the fiery glow located a few hundred light years below the plane of the Milky Way, though you could slow to examine the host of hot young stars luminous among the gas and dust. Though you could observe close up the proto-stars poised to burst forth from their dusty cocoons, though you could witness a star's birth in all of your stellar journeys, you would never see anything equal to the birth and wonder of a human being. The greatest wonder of all is that this child is created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. The child once was not. Now, as a created soul, this child is eternal. He or she will exist forever. When the stars of the universe fade away, that soul will still live. We cannot boast that we are the apex of God's creation. This is God's doing. He has made it so, and He deserves our gratitude and our worship. Well, that's all good, Justin. That's nice to know. We express God, and this is how it was in the beginning. But Justin, don't you remember? Something happened since then. Adam and Eve fell. Didn't that change things? Didn't that make things different? What about the fall, Justin? We rebelled against God. Has has He not now chosen to remove His image from us? 
Has He now decided that we are no longer fit to serve as His representatives on this earth? What effect has the fall had on our creation in the image of God? Well, the answer of the Scripture seems to be this, that despite mankind's fall, we retain the image of God within us and still represent Him on this earth today. Did you hear me? Did you hear that? We retain the image of God and still represent Him on this earth today. One very clear piece of evidence of this is in James 3, 9, when James is talking about the tongue. Listen to what James says about the tongue. With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Is James saying that we use our, our tongues to curse Adam and Eve because they're the only ones who are ever bore the likeness of God? No. He's saying that when you curse your neighbor, when you curse someone in your family, when you curse somebody in front of you at the red light who, who seems to be whatever, right? Whenever you curse somebody, you are cursing a human being created in the image of God. The whole argument of James 3.9 is that people today still bear God's image. Your coworker, your spouse, the, the guy that hands you the milkshake at cookout bears the image of God. The Old Testament teaches the same thing. After the fall, God said to Noah, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. In other words, if somebody murders another human being, they deserve the punishment of death. Not because Adam and Eve bore the image of God, but because the person murdered bears the image of God. There is a dignity, a dignity which is inherent to every child, to every man, to every woman. There is a sanctity to human life that is given to us by our Father. But, I haven't fully answered the question. We ask the question, what did the fall do to the image of God in us? And the answer is that we continue to bear God's image, but... Here's the devastating part. We now bear God's image in a twisted and distorted manner. We still express God to the world, but we express Him falsely. Rather than expressing His righteousness and His good character by living out our own lives in righteousness and goodness as we were created to do, man has become evil. Man has devoted himself to wicked things and therefore dishonors and blasphemes God each and every day just by living. Rather than expressing God's holiness through our own lives of holiness, we've become impure and defiled and therefore we have become poor representatives of God because He is not impure. He is not unholy. God does not think evil thoughts. He does not utter lying words. God does not treasure material things. Our God is not filled with bitterness or lust or greed. He's not lazy. He's not gluttonous. He does not oppress the poor. He does not love violence. An image is meant to express the God it represents. We express lies about our God. We live blasphemy every day of our lives. 
This is, why, this is when we talk about sin. We're not talking about something minor. When we say we are sinners, it's a big deal. We were created to honor God through pure lives. We now speak to the universe and into the very ears of God himself lies about who he is. This happened quick after the fall. Fall happens in Genesis 3, Genesis 4. You've got polygamy. You've got murder. You've got arrogance. You get to Genesis 6 and God says that the wickedness of man is great on the earth. That every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. What's God going to do about this? Is God going to stand for this? Is Is he going to allow his glory and his name to be trampled by the images that were meant to bring him glory and honor? No. And so God brings judgment in the form of a flood. And yet even after the flood, there is still sin in human beings because God preserved a family, a a righteous family, but still a fallen family. And God promised He would never again flood the earth. He puts a bow in the sky pointing towards Him, saying that the next time He brings punishment on His images for dishonoring Him, He will bear the punishment. And He did. Our lives of blasphemy and sin deserve hell, yet God saved His people from the judgment they deserve by pouring hell out on Himself in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are in Christ are saved from God's judgment. It is only those who continue to live in rebellion that remain under God's wrath. It's time to draw this to a close, but I want to ask you to listen very carefully to this. Not only has God provided a way for our blasphemous lives to be forgiven through our great Savior, but He, hear this, has provided a way for the broken, distorted image of God within us to be fixed, to be restored. It began with Jesus taking on humanity. He is God and He is man. He is the second Adam. The first Adam represented us in the garden. When He sinned, we sinned. He is the federal head of the human race. Adam's curse is our curse. But Jesus came as the head of a new race. He represented His people. Adam represented us at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when He committed that grave sin. But Jesus represented us on a tree on Mount Calvary, the old rugged cross that we sang about. It was there that He represented all who believe on Him. And He bore the punishment we deserve if we believe. Through Adam, God's image in man was broken and distorted into something ugly. But through Christ, that image will be restored. This very day, our Jesus sits at the right hand of God. And He is about the business of sending His Spirit into any He chooses to bring them new life, a new heart that desires desires to honor God with our thoughts and our words and our actions. He gives to people a new heart that grieves that we have blasphemed God so much with our lives. And then Jesus uses that Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ Himself, to begin conforming us and restoring the image of God within us. So that when we enter the new heavens and the new earth, we will enter there as Adam and Eve were in the beginning. As perfect, finite expressions of the glory of God for His glory and our joy forever. 
big, church. That's the big picture. It's part of it. What God is doing in you. Do you know who you are? Do you know what you are? Do you understand what God is doing in you as a Christian? What His purposes are? What His goals are? And yet, this is the end. God, in accordance with His sovereign will, has not appointed for everyone to go to this glorious and wonderful end. Much of the human race will be condemned for their sin. God will do what He must do, which is show His displeasure at having had His images rebel. God's glory is at the center of all of this and our dishonoring of His glory is the vilest crime ever perpetrated. And those who continue to refuse His way of salvation, those who will have none of His forgiveness will suffer justly and be tormented along with the devil and his demons forever in hell. And those who scoff at that idea underestimate the worth of the glory of God. But our God is gracious. It was we who chose to rebel. He could have consigned us all to judgment. Instead, He has opened wide a door of salvation for any who will repent and return to Him in faith and obedience. He calls us to come as we are. He doesn't tell us to fix ourselves and then come. He says, you come and I'll fix you. And all who return to Him will be accepted. None will be turned away. Only a prideful fool would harden his heart against this God and this offer of salvation. If you do not know what it is to walk with God and to rest in His grace, if you have not been reconciled with Him, if you are not in the process of being fixed, I plead with you to go to the Lord Jesus today and be saved. Some of you in here, you know you're broken. You've seen it this week. I'm broken, but you don't know what to do about it. Go to Christ. He will restore you. Not only will He forgive your past sins, but He will make you new for the glory of God. If you are not trusting in Christ, if you do not know Him, if you are not walking with Him, turn to Him today. Go to Him in prayer. Cast yourself on Him and begin a new life of following Him forever. Would you bow with me? This moment, if there are any in here and you do not know where you stand with God, but you know that you are broken, then I plead with you to go to the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess your sin. Confess that you've been living your own life, your own way, with no regard for your Creator and the reason He created you. Ask Him to forgive your sins, and He will through Jesus Christ. And pledge today that you will begin turning to Him to hear His will for your life. Trust that He cares for you and knows best for you how you should live for your own joy in His glory. Don't miss this opportunity of salvation, but take it. 
Believers in this room, pray for those around us who may be unbelievers. Ask God what it is that you've been taught this morning. What did you learn that was new to you? What needs to change in the way you treat other people? Because you now understand the reason they exist. Let's all take time to respond to God however He leads us to do so. I'll be here to pray with any who want to pray with me. But let's take a few moments now and let's respond to God. Let's pray.